Revelation chapter 2, we've come as far as verse 12, and we're switching. We've been through the church of Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, now the church at Pergamos. And there it says, unto the angel of the church at Pergamos, write, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. That is Satan's throne, by the way. The rest of the time in Revelation is translated throne. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, again notice which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear, let him be hearing what the Spirit is saying today to Calvary Philly unto the churches, plural, not just Pergamos. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. That's pretty pretty cool promise that uh, I'm going to get a stone with a new name and none of y'all are going to know what it is either. You know, I wonder when we get to heaven, we're going to know. It says we'll know fully, even as we've been fully known. But isn't that cool that he's got an individual name for you? You know, we we got the name our parents gave us. You didn't really have much choice in that. Uh, I remember my son Josh was four or five and he said, why didn't you name me Douglas? don't know the answer to that, Josh. We, you, we, 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 I wanted to name you Ezekiel, and your mom said she couldn't nurse somebody named Ezekiel, so you're, you're Joshua, and she was right, as usual. Great Joshua. Pergamos, this church about 40 miles north of Smyrna, inland about 15 miles from the Aegean Sea. Pliny said it was the most famous and important city in that province. Um... It is a city filled with idolatry. Pergamos can mean marriage that's elevated. It can mean thoroughly married. Part of the word is where we get papyra from uh, because there was a library in Pergamos with 200,000 volumes. And because there had been hostility with Egypt, Egypt wouldn't supply them with papyra, which is made from the reeds. So it was in Pergamos where parchment was first used, which is leather. And if you can imagine, they had a library there uh, with 200,000 volumes handwritten on leather. Uh, and they last for a while. And, uh, but Anthony, who fell in love with Cleopatra, gave the library to the library in Alexandria 
guys will do anything when they're in love, you know. So, uh, so Pergamos, you know, if we look at it in context of church history, this is a church. If you see the church of Ephesus first, which means the desired one, and the Lord's got all kinds of great things to say about that church, and he challenges them about their first love. This was an atrophy that he saw. As we move to Smyrna, certainly we see the church under persecution, and uh, six million martyrs early in the first few centuries, first three centuries. And then no doubt Satan, and it says he dwells here, he understands by this time if you can't beat them, join them. So the church, through Constantine, who's the Roman emperor at the time, he's in a battle, and he looks up in the sky and supposedly sees this cross, and it said, in Oxignavensis, in this sign, conquer. So he felt it was a sign that the Catholic, the Romans should be Catholics. It's, it's the birth then of the Roman Catholic Church, which stood in contrast to Constantinople and the Eastern Orthodox Church. That's a whole study by itself, just free information. Um, so so the, the beginning of the Roman Church then, and, and Constantine then made it mandatory. It was a Christian empire then, once he had that experience. And he marched whole armies through the river in mass baptisms. And all this strange stuff came in out of idolatry. Um, those of you who love to torture yourselves... Uh, you want to get, it's not a real big book, but it's torturous. Uh, it, it's called The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. And he traces the Babylonian mystery religion from Tammuz and Semiramis, from the days of Nimrod through Nebuchadnezzar. And he proves that the Babylonian mystery religion ended up, migrated from there to Pergamos. And it's where it was established at that day. And, uh, and, and certainly this is a picture of an idolatrous, idolatrous area that is adopted Pontifex Maximus, which is the bridge builder with the big Dagon, the fish hats. Uh, all of this stuff comes in. Certainly then purgatory comes into the church and from uh, Tammuz and Simiramis, the Blessed Mother, and all of these things start finding their way into the church under different categories, different images, and so forth. Then the, then the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, starts to fight with the Eastern Orthodox Church. And again, they started to gather all kinds of relics and everything. And Constantine was buried in the middle of 12 caskets, which he said were the 12 apostles that he scrounged up through the world and was balanced and buried there in, in, in the middle of his coffin. So it's a time that fills the church with liturgical traditions that were biblical with all of this extra stuff, a priesthood, all of this stuff's coming in. And Pergamos then, the enemy understood I couldn't get rid of them by martyrdom. Tertullian said the blood of the saints was a seed of the church and the church was spreading and it was pure and it was powerful. So he marries the church to the world. And the Lord, when he addresses this church, says, I'm the one with the two-edged sword. Uh, the, the large Thracian sword, almost six foot long. You'll find it in 116, 214, twice in Revelation 19. It's always a sword relative to judgment because it, take, it could take off with one swing an arm or a leg or cut somebody in half and it was known to split somebody from the head down to their groin in two pieces. 
And the Lord uses it, it's four times in the book of Revelation when he's speaking about judgment. Several times the short sword is used in a different context, the Roman sword. But he's the one with this two-edged sword. And he's going to speak to compromise. The problem with this church is it was a tolerant church. It was allowing in the morals of the day, such an important message for our church today around the world. It was letting in all kinds of worldly standards and the Lord's going to say to them, look, you've done great things, but you've been martyred in my name. You, you've held on to my name. You've held on to the faith. But you're allowing in your midst those who are compromised. There's a toleration, and that tolerance is not healthy for them, and it certainly isn't healthy for my bride, for you. And that's going to be his challenge as he goes in here. So we know that his, his word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides down between the bone and the marrow. All the way down it says to the soul and the spirit, that which is carnal and that which is spiritual. And it accomplishes, we're told. It, it is effectual. You know? and, and here we're going to hear this one part of the image in the first chapter with this huge sword proceeding from his mouth is, addresses this church, as it were, with the word of God, with the sword of the spirit. Um, and he says in verse 13, I know where you dwell. I know where you're dwelling. And it's a very interesting verse. Look, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, where Satan's, again, throne is. The, the King James translators didn't want to give him a throne, so they put seat, but the Greek word is thronos. He says, where Satan's throne is, and thou holdest fast, you're holding Fast my name, you have not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, and again, where Satan dwelleth. Interesting verse. Uh, the, you know, the philologists and the Greek scholars say, you know, the hard thing about the verse is it reminds us that Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at one time. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-knowing. He can only be at one place at one time. And the language here doesn't allow you to stretch that. It's seen, it's in, the, in the language, it's saying this is where he's enthroned, Pergamos. This is where his seat, this is where his base of operations, control and command center at this time seemed to be at Pergamos. And it was there that this man Antipas, and this is the only place we hear about him in Scripture, the only martyr named in the book of Revelation, he's martyred. Early church tradition says that Gaius, remember 1 John, uh, 3 John, verse 1, speaks of Gaius. John speaks to Gaius. John had been the pastor in Ephesus for 30 years. Says that Gaius was, in fact, the bishop at Pergamos. And when Gaius passed off the scene, that Antipas then was the next bishop in Pergamos. And uh, it says there that he was martyred. He refused to bend the knee. Look. Pergamos is the first major Roman city outside of Rome to have Caesar worship, and that was established in 24 BC. Smyrna built their temple to Caesar in 26 AD. So this is the earliest form of Caesar worship. They had the worship of Aesculapius, the, the healing god, and, and a large temple there to her. And if you were sick, you didn't go to the doctor. He came to this temple, and it was filled with snakes. The, the symbol of Aesculapius 
is a pole with a serpent wrapped around. I have nothing against the modern medical field, and you know, no doubt that image goes all the way back to the book of Numbers, where Moses puts the serpent on the pole, and everybody who looks at it is healed from the, you know, the miracle that took place. But by this time, it's in idolatrous religion. And the way you went there is you went and you would sleep on the temple floor. And it was full of snakes. They were not venomous. And if one of those snakes bit you while you're asleep, then you would be healed. My wife would never go to the doctor if this is what we had to do today. But it's no prescriptions, you know, no co-pays. This is wonderful in some respects, you know. So the, the, the idolatry was there. Then there was a temple to Athena, which was the goddess of war. There was a temple Dionysius. There was the temple of Bacchus. There were all of these things. And then as it wound up to the Acropolis, which is like a thousand foot above the valley, there was the temple of Zeus and the largest altar in the Roman world, one of the seven wonders of the world. And the altar to Zeus, the god of gods, the king of gods, whose son, by the way, is Apollyon. We're going to read about the destroyer in chapter 9. Abaddon and Apollyon, but Zeus, supposedly, this was his throne, and it's, it looks like a throne, this huge altar, and it's supposedly there where there was a large bronze bull on the steps, and on those steps is where they took Antipas, and they heated up that bronze bull till it was glowing, and threw him inside of it, and supposedly that's where he died. He was burned alive. The Greek word for that was holocaust. Now that becomes significant. Does Satan have a place? He can only be in one place at one time. If in fact he's there at this point, the largest altar in the world, shaped like a throne, if this is his headquarters, where has he migrated to? Where's the largest altar in the world today? Is it in Basel, Switzerland? Is it the Bank of International Settlement? Is it money? A good friend of mine in the intelligence community in another country, I asked him something once, and I said just a few years ago, is the, do you think the Europeans did this? He said, no. No more geographical borders. The world is ruled by international corporations, not geographical borders. He said, money runs the world, not geography. Is that where the largest dollar in the world is today? How about social media? That, that's affecting and has more people in its grip than ever, and it's degrading so much of the time, pulls people down. Is that the largest altar? Where's his seat today? I don't know. But I think there's a literal side to it. See, in 1864, a German archaeologist slash engineer named Karl Human comes to Turkey to Pergamos and starts to do some excavations. And he finds on the top at the Acropolis, a thousand foot above everything else, this huge altar to Zeus, and he begins to excavate, and he uncovers it, and he's astounded. He gets permission from the Turkish government, and he moved that altar to Berlin stone by stone. In 1930, the Turks gave the Germans official permission to own it. It's at the Museum of Pergamum, Google it, the Museum of Pergamum in Berlin, Germany, and they have this thing set up 
And it's five stories high, a hundred and some foot wide on every side, and it looks like a throne. And this huge altar, the Zeus, is there in Germany. Now, one of the interesting things about it is that in the late 30s, uh, there was a man named Albert Speer, and the new chancellor of Germany asked him to build at Nuremberg a structure. The new chancellor was Adolf Hitler. Build a structure where he could mesmerize the crowds. Albert Speer went and saw the Temple of Zeus. Hitler approved, and they rebuilt that structure in Nuremberg. And that's the first place that Adolf Hitler said, used the phrase, the final solution. That's where Satan, instead of burning Antipas in a bronze bull, where he burned six million Jews in the oven. I think Satan may have moved there. And you know, look, Satan's always had an antichrist. God just shuts them down. Hasn't Someday he's going to let one be the antichrist. Hitler would have been. He had been shut down. No doubt demon-possessed. You read the, the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, they call him the carpet biter because of what happened after he spoke and the demons that he saw and so forth. He wanted to start the Third Reich, the third millennium. He, he thought that they were going to start that. You know, So it seems you know, it's, it's dark. By the way, it's closed down now. They're doing this expansion and repair. It's going to open... In 2025, probably right after the rapture. So if you're still here for some reason and you want to go, you get over there. Uh, but Google it. It's spooky. And I think, you know, was that where, at least in that time period, the middle of the last century, is that where his seat was? Certainly blood and destruction flowed from there. Where is it today? Do we bow to it in any form, in any way? Is it money? Is it immorality? Is it social media? Is it where's the most influential altar in the world today, and in what way is it destroying? I don't know. I think that's good for each of us to think about, and if there's any part of that that needs to be weeded out of our own lives. But this was the place, evidently at this point in time, where this fallen Cherubim, Lucifer, gave his control and command center. And yet the Lord says in the middle of that, the church that was there hadn't denied his name or his faith. His name, Onama, everything that Jesus is in his name, the Savior, everything he represents to us. You know, in the church today, is the church embracing Jesus in regards to everything that he is, Savior, Lord, King, Redeemer, Returning King, Prophet, has the church really embraced Jesus? The only way, only one name given among men, whereby we must be saved at the name of Jesus. Has the church today realized that every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess, you know, everything in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and give glory to Jesus Christ, that say Jesus is Lord? Is the church realizing that? He says, you haven't denied my faith, the, the, the basic tenant of the doctrines of Christianity, which are immovable. Truth is merciless. It doesn't yield. It either blesses completely or it condemns. Truth doesn't yield at all. This church, he says, look, you, you haven't denied my name. 
He's going to say it to the church of Philadelphia. You, you haven't denied my name. You kept the faith. You haven't denied my name. He's, he's saying he's commending this church. Right where the enemy's influence is, he says right in the middle of that, you've kept true to the path. He said, but I have this against you. You look in verse 14. I have a few things against thee because thou hast there. Now look, the Lord's trouble is not with them not with the church of Pergamos, but with them, he says, you have these things, you have there among you them. That's who the Lord has the trouble with. The them that are spreading bad doctrine and the tolerance of the church that lets it go on. You have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam, and you go through the New Testament, you hear him mentioned three times. There's the error of Balaam, the way of Balaam. You look in Second Peter and Jude. And here is the teaching of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam. And he describes it. Who taught, and it's imperfect, and is still teaching his influence. He taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication, so hast thou also them, there among you, that hold, now it's the doctrine, and when he says this to the church of Ephesus, it's the deeds, now it's the actual teaching, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And again, the Lord says, which thing I hate. If Jesus hates something, we should hate it. So he says, here's the problem with the church. Right in the middle of the enemy's influence, you guys are standing. I know your works. I know what you've done that's good. And Antipas laid down his life. He wouldn't yield. And you've kept my name. You've kept my faith. But this is what I'm concerned about. You have allowed amongst yourself those who are promoting the doctrine of Balaam. And you remember the story in Numbers. Balak hires Balaam to curse the children of Israel. Every time he opens his mouth, God fills him with the Spirit, and he blesses the children of Israel. And he finally has to say to Balak, look, I can't, I can't remove God's blessing on them. It's just not going to happen. But he says, but you can get them to come out from under God's blessing. God's umbrella is over them, and I can't remove that. But you can get them out from under that umbrella of blessing. And he said, what to do? Send down to the camp of Israel some of your pretty Moabite girls. And let them go down there with the Israeli young men and teach them about your idols. And then teach them that part of your idolatrous worship is sexual. And as that happens, you can draw them as they're in idolatrous sin out from under the blessing of God. And God judges them there for that. You remember a great passage with Phineas and so forth there. You can look on your own. Um, and I think are we tolerating that in the church look we, we live in a time when all kinds of tolerance all kinds of moral laxity all kinds of gender issues there's all kinds of things in the church and the church look this is not a Democracy. This is a kingdom. This is not a permissive society. This is a blood-bought family of believers. 
And the price that was paid for us is so dramatic. And the Holy Spirit that fills us, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, not the cool ghost, not the culturally relevant ghost, the Holy Ghost fills us. And yet so much in the church desiring to be palatable to a broken culture wants to lower standards today so that worldly people feel comfortable coming in. And then what that does is then Christians are seduced into that idea where worldly morality comes into the church. You know, marriage is a covenant. It's, there's so many divorces in the church today amongst those that call themselves believers. And, and, and people are not fighting. Look, it's a covenant. You made a covenant when you got married. You made a covenant. I lost my wedding ring because I lost weight. I lost my wedding ring. I'm trying to figure out where it is. I have this bad feeling I pulled off a latex glove and threw it out. But, uh, and I, you know, I said, honey, but I, you know, we, we need to pray for that because that, that in, in, you know, saw our wedding was there. You know, that's all of our kids born. That saw hell and high water. That saw tears and laughter and sorrow. The sign of a covenant. What that stupid piece of gold saw is the whole story. You know, uh, I, I, I want to get that. Uh, you know, I, I, so I'm looking for. Pray that I find it. Pray to Saint Anthony that I find it. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. Okay, it's a joke. <laughs> because when I got that, it was 99 bucks, and, and gold was $150 an ounce then. It's a $1,900 an ounce now, so I'll replace it. But uh, can a little skinny one? No, you have a lighter one. Uh, but marriage is a covenant. It's sacred. Sexuality is a divine gift that God has given and designed in his genius. And it's just splattered all over now. It means nothing. We want his covenant with us to stand. You know, marriage is is uh, is wonderful and trialful. <laughs> it is because there's two sinners involved, and it's an incredible place of learning and growing, and not being selfish. But this is an age that we're living in now that much like this picture, the church is allowing immorality to come in. And rather than confronting somebody with the truth, we'd rather pat them on the back so they feel comfortable and don't go away. Like it's immoral evangelism or something. That's impossible. can't happen. He said the other problem you have there is you have there the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The doctrine, the teaching. Now, Nicolaitans, again, we talked about in Ephesus. Was there a bishop, Nicole? That's hard to prove historically. But from the word, Nicolaity, you know, Bala means to swallow the people. Nicolaitan means to conquer the people. And the idea is the Lord, whatever there may have been historically, the word itself means the conquering of the laity. This is what happens. If this, in fact represents an era of church history when relationship dies religion is always born 
The, the church before this at Smyrna, you're laying down your life for Jesus Christ. You have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're willing to let the sword come down on your head or whatever it might be, you're going to believe on the other side of that you're going to step into glory. There's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Under Constantine, birth of the Roman Catholic Church, whatever it might be, when relationship with Jesus begins to wane, religion is born. When doctrine wanes, dogma is born. When the individual priesthood dies, a physical priesthood takes its place. And and certainly the Lord would say, I hate that. I hate that. I hate people stealing my kids and leading them into immorality. And I hate the veil menders. I died on the cross and the veil was torn. And now these guys, these priests come around with their needle and thread and sew the veil up again so people need to get to me through them. I hate that. You have kids. I've got kids, grandkids. You know, if somebody came to one of my uh, my kids when they were little and, you know, said, uh, you, you can't uh, see your father, but I'd be glad to talk to you. Uh, I asked my dad if I can have a chocolate chip cookie, you know. And then, uh, the, then the, the butler, whoever he was, came and said, sir... Uh, the children are inquiring if this is the proper time for them to partake of a chocolate chip cookie. And I would say, what are you talking about? No, they're going to eat their spinach first, you know. And they would go back to my kids and say, well, your father um, has beckoned you first to partake of the vegetable substances in this world before you, you know, I would hate that. I want to scream at my own kids and say no to them. I don't want anybody in between us, right? You don't want anybody telling your kids, this is what your father thinks about you. And for you to get close, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do this, and you need to do that. I would be furious. And that's why Jesus says, I hate that. I paid the price so I can embrace my own sons and daughters. I have no more access to Jesus than any of you. Neither did Billy Graham or Chuck Smith. We can only approach Jesus through the blood that he shed on the cross. Besides that, I don't have any more access. Uh, Hopefully as pastors, we may be able to sit down with you and say, well, look, this is what I think the scripture says about your particular circumstance you're asking about. But as far as access to Christ, that's through the cross. It's done. It's finished. It's paid for. And all of us has access to the Lord of Lord. And he here saying, I hate anybody who tries to get between me and my bride. I hate it. Guys, what do you do if somebody gets between you and your bride? Don't tell me. <laughs> Don't tell me. Tell her, um, as he's doing. So he says, these are the things that bother me, that here's this church where there's even martyrdom. There's good works. that They've held on to my name. They've held on to my faith. Right in the middle of all that, the enemy's working But this is what bothers me, guys. You've become tolerant. You used to be on fire. It was uncomfortable for unbelievers to be there. Now there's a tolerance. There's, you know, and you're letting these things happen. He says, if you look down here in verse 16, he says, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly. And notice this, fight against them, those that are coming into the church to dilute it, not the, the church of Pergamos, but those in their midst that are teaching these things. I'm going to fight against them. So he says this first. Look, here's, here's the answer to my challenge. First of all, repent, right? That's a favorite word in our culture today, isn't it? 
repent. You know, everybody, ah, you're one of those Bible thumpers where I go to church. They don't use the word, they don't use the R word. They don't use the S word, sin. They don't use the H word, hell. You know, they don't say, what do you mean repent? You're one of those Bible thumpers. No, 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 no. Repent is an invitation. It's not a condemnation. It's turn back to me. Come home. You're blood bought. My heart is broken. The direction you're moving in, I can't bless you. I'm going to have to come and with the word, deal with that. Come home. Again, John the Baptist, the, the, among those born of women, not a greater hath arisen than John, the greatest prophet that ever lived. What do you have to say? God says more important than Alexander the Great, than Pharaoh, than Nebuchadnezzar, than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, than Moses, than Ezekiel. This is the greatest voice in human history. And his message was repent. God said, I put him in the middle of it all to say, turn back to me. And John's message, like the other prophets, unlike the other prophets, was filled it, he, he could finish it and say, repentance and faith. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So repentance is not a bad word. It is an invitation. It's a diagnosis from the great physician. Now the next two words, you kind of don't like to put those with repentance. Or else. Any of us who have raised kids, that was part of our favorite vocabulary. Or else, you know, uh, you need to do this or else I'm going to come and fight against them, the compromisers in your midst, with the sword of my mouth. Look, isn't it interesting he's saying that kind of tolerance, it's bad for the person that is being tolerant or compromised, and it's bad for those who are tolerating that. It's not good anywhere. And what it's saying, look, your responsibility, my responsibility is not just for pastors, this is the church, it's in the plural. If you have a friend who you know is living in sexual sin, you didn't find that out so you can go blab it, you can go tell other people. You didn't find that out so you can go to a gossip prayer meeting where everybody sits in a circle and Oh, Lord, you know so-and-so. Nobody knows this is a big secret, but they're sleeping with so-and-so, and and I'm praying for them. You know, we have gossip prayer meetings. That's not what it's for. It's so you can pray, and then you go to them as an individual brother and sister and say, look, you're blowing it. Galatians 6.1 says, if you see a brother or sister that's overtaken in a fault, you, with the spirit of meekness, go to that person and restore them. And it's the word that's used for restoring a broken bone. It may take you six weeks. How long does it take to get the cast off? It may take eight weeks. Are you willing to take the time? If you see someone who's blowing it and compromising, do you love them? You young people, teenagers, young adults, it may cost you to take that stand, like Antipas, to stand against all. There may be a cost. But in the long run, it's the only thing to do. A church with an immune system is a healthy church. A body without a functioning immune system is ill. The body should clean itself. You know, the pastors occasionally will have somebody. If we find out somebody's in sin, we'll talk with them, we pray with them, we take time with them. 
But if we have somebody who's obstinate, no matter how many times we talk to them, they're, they're going to just do that, and it's infecting other people, we exercise church discipline. We will finally sit and write them a letter and say, look, you refuse to listen to the book we teach here, the, the scripture. You refuse to listen to the elders and pastors that are in authority here. For you to come is a travesty, and you're just infecting other people with your sin. So we're efficiently asking you not to come. We're putting you out. If we find out you're going somewhere else, we'll let that pastor know that we've dealt with you. When you're willing to repent, please come talk to us. We want you to come home. But before they come back, they have to sit with the pastors. We have to look at each other and say their repentance is real. They're broken. If we find somebody here that got thrown out of another church for sin, we find out, we say, no, you, we'll talk, call the other pastor and say, look, we're sending them back to you. We told them they can't sit here until they make that right. And once they make that right and you say it's okay, then if they feel led, they can certainly worship with us. But the point is, if we don't take a stand, the church has no immune system. The Holy Spirit can't move freely because of all the other spirits that are there. And the Lord says, if you don't deal with this, I'm going to come. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Who has an ear? Everybody got an ear? Two, you're twice as responsible. He who has an ear, let him hear, be hearing what the Spirit is saying today, present tense, to the churches, plural, not just Pergamos, to the churches all over the world. Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's saying to his church all over the world today, you know, I appreciate any of you that are martyrs that have laid down your life. I appreciate your works, the good things you're doing. I appreciate that you've not denied my name or my faith. And I know the enemy has a place, and he's organized, he's moving, he's working. But don't let your church be tolerant of sin. Don't let your church put a person between you and the Lord. And you need to stand up and identify what illness is in the body and deal with that in a loving way and see that person restored. If you're not willing to do that, I'm going to do it. That's not good for them. There's an or else tied to that. He said, but if you're hearing what I'm saying, to the person who overcomes, overcometh, is constantly overcoming, that's in Revelation chapter 12, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. To the one who overcomes, he says, I'm going to let him eat of the hidden manna. Doesn't sound easy to do if it's hidden, right? What is the hidden manna? You know, in this last promise, you read the scholars and you need a bottle of Excedrin after you read. You know, you're going to eat of the hidden manna. Uh, you're going to receive a white stone. And your name's going to be written on there, but it's a new name. And nobody knows but the person who receives it. Kind of like that. First thing is, you'll be able to partake of the hidden manna. I think it's John 6, around 51, where the Lord says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the manna. We know that manna was 
angel's food, as it were. It was a divine impartation. When you read through Exodus and Leviticus, you have over 40 tons of manna falling every morning to feed that many people. Jesus, when he taught us to pray, said, give us this day our daily bread. He said, the person who overcomes, he's going to be able to feast on something that other people aren't going to be able to. Because it's, it's hidden in a sense. Not to the believer, but to the world. We have a resource, the world. Look, you watch the news as this world is falling apart all around us. It's going to hell in a handbasket. We have something else. You're not supposed to be sitting in church. And look, I've addressed the church. I've addressed our staff. You're not supposed to be sitting here. Jesus is not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. Don't you bring that division here. Jesus isn't black. He's not white. Don't you bring that division here. Prejudice is not a place for the church. Political insults is not a place for the church. Turn on the news. Our world is so divided and so angry. This is supposed to be an oasis where people can come together and be blessed. And we partake of the hidden manna that the Lord's promised to us. There's a hidden manna for us. And he says beyond that hidden manna, then there's a white stone. And I like the white there. Now, Scholars go back and forth about this. If you were in the court in this day and you were acquitted, that would be with a white stone. The jury, whatever it was, would put black stones or white stones into a bucket or whatever they used. And the white stones outweighed, and you're given a white stone, means you're acquitted. In fact, in our culture, if they say somebody's blackballed, that means it comes from this tradition. Of, it was a black stone that ca- you know, the, the cast in their name. A white stone means you were acquitted. You're, you're free. You've been liberated. Also, but there was no name inscribed on that white stone. At the Olympics, if you won in a contest, you were given a white stone with your name on it. In fact, the competitors would have a white stone. They could prove that they were competitors. And then you use that stone at the end of the day to go to the feast for all the the athletes that were there, and you had, to have the, you had to have the white stone with your name on it. Certainly we have that. We're being invited to a, a marriage supper of the Lamb, so it's nice to have that, isn't it? Uh, you, you know, whatever it is, you go through all of these different scenarios, it's a symbol of acquittal. It's a symbol of approval. It's a symbol of acceptance. It's a symbol of invitation. A white stone's going to be given to us. I don't know exactly what that is, but I'm so glad it's white. A white stone is going to be given to us. And it says on it, there's a new name for us. I've been called a lot of names. This is a new name. I didn't even pick my own name, my parents. I woke up and that's who I was. Again, you know, a new name. And it's not new in the sense that it means recent in time. It's new in quality. There is no earthly name that could communicate what that new name will be when it's given to you. You and Jesus are going to know about it. Don't ask me of mine. I ain't telling you. If there's a rule there, you know, then I'll share. But I mean, you know, he's going to get, he's going to give me a new name, but it's new in quality. It means something. And he doesn't want any Nicolaitans between us and him. It's a private blessing. 
something we'll take in our hearts for eternity. So look, Pergamos, this church. The Lord speaks to this church with the sword of his mouth because it's compromised. Great stuff going on. People even lay down their lives for Christ. They've held on to his word, held on to his name, held on to the doctrines of the faith. And, and, and this is where Satan's throne is. Look, so wherever it is today, we can do it, whether it's social media, whether it's money, whatever throne the enemy beckons us to bow the knee at. Still, his word is enough. It's enough for us. And he says this church is compromised, not because the church itself, but you're allowing those to sit and worship with you that are living in sexual sin, that are compromised. Then you're allowing those among you who are pushing for this priesthood. You know, they're pushing for something that needs to be between you and Jesus. And that's nonsense. Jesus says, I hate that. I hate it. Repent, he says to the church. Isn't it interesting that tolerance and compromise is something we need to repent of, he says. Repent or I'll come or else. You can just circle or else. And then that's all you need to remember about this. Repent or else. I will come and fight against them. The people in your church that you're permitting to be there that are sowing cancer in the church. I'll come and fight against them with the word of my mouth. To my kids, my sons and daughters, my bride that's overcoming, you can eat of the hidden manna. I'm going to nourish you. Things will fall from heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And there's a white stone with your name on it of acceptance and of acquittal, a family title. And we're going to share that name. Nobody's going to know, the Savior says, but you and I. What a blessing, huh? Isn't that a blessing? Let's stand and pray. So don't listen to anybody else. You get called a lot of names until we get there and get the one we're supposed to get. Father, we thank you for these things. And and Lord, we look at them and, and certainly not all easy, not all comfortable. But there's so much blessing here at the same time. And Lord, you are so, Lord, you don't want us to tolerate sin, but... Lord, you are so tolerant of us, as it were, as your children, to correct us, to challenge us, to reprove us. And Lord, let Calvary Philly, let it, let this family of believers be healthy. Lord, let those who come in know we're your disciples because of the love we have one for another. And allow us in that context to speak the truth in love to one another, Lord. If we see a brother or sister overtaken in a fault, Lord. Let us restore that one with the spirit of meekness, considering ourselves, Lord, knowing we're no better. And Lord, let us be healthy in these days. You always saw these days coming. You saw the first three centuries of the church. You saw the the next three centuries of the church. None of that ever took you by surprise. Neither does this morning. So, Lord Jesus, we commit our lives, our hearts, our minds afresh. You know, each of us, Lord, and, and you'll have a a name for each of us, Lord. No doubt you have a challenge for each of us this morning, Lord. And we trust you, Lord, to speak to our hearts, Lord Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen.